Galatians, the second chapter, beginning at verse 15, context, Paul has been describing his confrontation with Peter because Peter would eat with the Gentiles until Jews came from Jerusalem and then he he showed a, a form of hypocrisy by not wanting to rub elbows with the Gentiles. And Paul is writing this after that confrontation. We ourselves are Jew by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God it was count- and it was counted to him as righteousness. And with that, we end the reading of God's word. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. And you may be seated. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. I remind you why we do. We are being taught the faith that has once been delivered to the saints. It's a faith that has encouraged and strengthened the church throughout 2,000 years of history. And it is the foundation upon which we believe and upon which we act. It provides a solid foundational document for understanding who we are and what we have been given by God. It is also that which is a practical theology. It's one of the reasons I like this. I, I really enjoy the Westminster Standards, but boy, that's deep theology. And it, it makes you think, which is good. And maybe this is a picadillo of a theologian and a biblical scholar. I love to think. That's why I came up with last week was just exciting for Reformed people because we heard that word election. Yes, makes you think. And it's, it's worthy to go through those. But this one is practical. It takes the faith and then says, well, what in the world does it mean to you? 
How do you put this into practice? Or why do we believe that which we believe? And now when we're in Lord's Day 23 and we're taking a look at what is, it is to be justified by faith, we are asking a question that very few really ask. You know, the, the crucial question for our culture is this, how can I become the person I was meant to be? You go to the bookstore, you see all those self-help books. All the advertisements and the information, this is how you can be the person you were meant to be. And unfortunately, it's also come within the church and within congregations. Your best life is before you. How can they, they take five weeks to go through, this is how you can have a great marriage, or how you, this is how you can have a wonderful job, this is how you can do that, that. You fill in the blank. And then usually at the end of the sermon, because they're evangelicals, they throw in, and you got to come to Jesus. And you, I kind of look and listen to that and go, why? You just told me how, how I could have a wonderful life. And you almost told me how to do it without Christ. This is, a, this is the kind of culture in which we live. Our catechism asks the questions that really is important. And it's this, how can sinners like me and you be justified in the sight of a holy God? That's the key question. The other, in some ways, never touches it because it never touches that we are indeed people who are lost. People are alienated from God, hopeless, as Ephesians would say it. But that's a question you have to wrestle with. How can me, a sinner, and someone who recognizes how sinful I am, be set right with the holy God? And so we have spent innumerable weeks, probably more than you ever wanted, going through the Apostles' Creed and go, boy, we got through that, didn't we? Now we can go on to something better. No. The reason you went through it is for the foundation of the faith and for you to realize what does it take to be justified by faith. And that's where the catechism takes us. That's what you will read. And again, you have this book if you don't buy it because part of what we do here, I, I sometimes go right through the questions but sometimes I just ask you to take the questions, look at the scripture verses, think about it for yourself. You know, be like the Bereans who love to look at the word of God and see what it said to them. The question 59 of Lord's Day 23 is, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? And the answer is that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. And then it goes on to answer that question more fully. How are you righteous before God? And finally, question 61, why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? So what we're going to do, I, I gave you an outline. Um, we will be looking at it once in a while. I am getting less and less excited about giving you an outline because usually somewhere around Saturday night, Sunday morning, thinking about it, I'm thinking, we ought to do this some way different. <laughs> it's, your outline is like this book. Take it home, read it, look at the verses, and think about what it says. Today, we are playing Sesame Street. Today is a letter P 
five aspects of what it means to be justified by faith. Or, if you don't like P, C. Five C's. <laughs> Sesame Street all over again. You know, they say you never grow out of your childhood. I'm a living example. <laughs> and therefore, we go back to that. Five aspects. First one, proposition. There's a certain content to the faith. It's not feelings. You know, you may know or you may not know the five solos of the Reformation. You ought to know those because those are key understandings. But there is a new one for evangelism and the evangelical movement in our day. Number six, sola centauri. Feelings alone. How does this make me feel? How do I feel when I come to worship? Do, do I get goosebumps? Well, sometimes you do, and sometimes you just don't. This is not one I am going to put in on a book of Reformation solos. Because we don't deal with, first of all, feelings. We deal with proposition, content. In saying that, what I'm saying is what one of my mentor loves, mentors love to say, R.C. Sproul. He says, putting words in your mind or putting the, the doctrines in your mind does not necessarily mean it goes to your heart. But if it's in your heart, it first came through your mind. You have to know the faith. You have to understand what it is. So Paul, when he's writing in, in the Galatians, and he's talking about uh, what uh, the difference between Peter and Paul or the, the need to be justified by faith, he begins by saying in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of law. He takes it right to the mind. It's not we feel. It's one of my pet peeves, and I correct people sometimes, and sometimes I'm, I'm compassionate. I do have compassion. It's in here somewhere. Sometimes I can't find it, but I know it's here. And we, I feel that so-and-so is right. I go, I don't care what you feel about it. I want you to know about it. Because it's got to be up here before it gets here. But it can't be in here unless it's first up here. And so there's a center to our faith. And that center is found in the Apostles' Creed. We talked about the Father who is a creator and sustainer. Remember the Creed puts two of those together. There is always an idea that God created because nothing can come out of nothing. Therefore, there had to be somebody who did the first thing. But the creed goes on. He sustains it. Everything works by his providential care. There's a son who is the provider or the purchaser of our salvation by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And I use those four categories because it's not simply his death, burial, and resurrection. It is his life by which he becomes the acceptable sacrifice in order to be able to die on our behalf, taste grave on our behalf, and be resurrected so that everything he did is shown to be true. 
And then it's the Holy Spirit who takes what the Father has planned and the Son has purchased and produces it within those whom God works. That's the third part of that the creed. And so in the creed, it just doesn't say Holy Spirit and then it goes to a different paragraph. No, it's the Holy Spirit with one, well, Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And one of the things I wanted you to see is that all of that is first of all because of the Holy Spirit. Without it, without the Holy Spirit, none of that would ever happen in any of us. He purchased, God's son purchases, the spirit produces. And these are the truths and the doctrines in the catechism. They safeguard what we believe. And this helps us to go way beyond Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's the essence of our faith. Well, that's, you know, that's like the little baby that goes, and yet we want to be mature individuals who say, this is what I believe and this is why I believe. And this is what it means to me. Secondly, and, and if, again, if you want a passage, Acts 2. Look at Cedar, Peter's sermon, first sermon. The summary that's given in Acts 2. It is filled with propositions, with doctrine. And that's, what he's, and that's 50, 53 days after the crucifixion, 50 days after the resurrection. And all he's doing is saying, this is what the Bible says. Second one, pierced. That is, there's conviction. It's not enough to know the propositions unless they pierce our, our hearts. When Peter was done, the crowd looked at him and said, what must we do to be saved? Or what must we do, Peter? And why did they ask it? That verse says, they were cut to the heart. It pierced them. It wasn't, a, oh, I got this knowledge. No, hmm. Now, what it did, it cut out any of their idea of goodness. And I put in there, in your passage, Romans, 9, Romans 3, 9 to 20, where it says that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. No one has done good. All are foolish. All, all are under a curse. That was there, not simply to so, show the goodness of God, but to pierce your heart and say, I thought I was a good person. I thought I had it all together. I thought I was at least had more good things than bad things. And that passage says, no. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. You haven't done one good thing all your life in comparison to the holiness of God. Well, you may have done good things compared to somebody else, but that won't get you one step close to being reconciled with God. I know this is true when I read it uh, back up in 69 in a camp and all of a sudden I realized Georgie Goody Two-Shoes wasn't that good <laughs> because that's what it did. It pierced and it brought conviction to, to me. And how does this happen? Well, there's a dual action that takes place. I'm sure you all remember a few weeks ago when I talked about the Holy Spirit, I gave you the 10 C's. 
You can rattle them off right now, right? Come on. If I gave you a blank piece of paper and said, write down the 10 C's, you probably couldn't remember one of them. (laughs) Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit convicts somebody, he just takes the word of God, which is the second action, and he just puts it right in there. And he shows you how wicked, how unloving you are. And that's his work. And that is like the surgeon who's cutting out cancer. It hurts, but it's the best thing that could possibly happen. The dual action is the Holy Spirit convicting. And the second part, Holy Spirit convicting you by reading the word of God. And they work in tandem. And they bring that result. The third part is the person. In the questions of the creed, of the catechism, he says, how are you righteous before God? And the answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned. I love some of the adjectives and adverbs that they use. Grievously sinned. I just haven't sinned grievously sinned against all the commandments of God. And look at that, all the commandments. Oh, come on, I I kept the one about not lying. I may shade the truth, but that's a white lie, and white lies count, don't they? No. All the commandments of God. And have never kept any of them, and that I am still prone to do evil. Now remember, they're talking to, to people who are on the other side of being made right with God. Just as Paul in the Galatians was saying, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to law so that I might live to God. He's talking about his life after having come to faith in Jesus Christ. And all I'm showing is I'm still a transgressor. I still need what God gave me at the very beginning. And that is to be justified by faith. And then he goes on, yet. You know, when you read the Bible and these things, you're always looking for those little three-letter words. But, yet. Or the bigger three-letter word, therefore. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience with Christ has fulfilled in me. There it is. It's centered upon Christ. And I say it this way because in our day and age there are a lot of different centers that people have for what they consider their saving faith. They have faith in faith. I believed, therefore I believe. What? Or I did this work. I raised my hand. I walked down the center aisle. I prayed the sinner's prayer and therefore I am right with God. Or, I was baptized. Or, I come up and I take communion. I take that tiny little wafer and I take that tiny little cup and I eat them. 
Oh, and I am saved. Or, I believe in Jesus because I know he can help me in some area of my life. No, no. Christ has to be the person who is the center of your life. When he was giving some parables, he talked about a man who was out in a field, found a treasure, and for the joy that was set before him, sold everything that he had to buy that treasure. And that was a parable that was talking about himself. He has to be the treasure. And I use the word the, not a, not an, the treasure. He has to be the treasure of your life, the center of your life. He has to be the joy of your life. Then you wake up in the morning, you are so excited because this is another day to spend with Jesus. That you are a person who loves to be with Jesus. You see, you see what that does to personal devotions? It's not, oh man, I got to check this off because if I don't do this, God doesn't love me and I'm not right with God. No, it makes personal devotions that which you love to do because you're spending time with Jesus. And because you're spending time with Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit who moves you to do that and Jesus points you to the Father. That your creator and sustainer. He has to be the center of who you are. Faith has to be placed in the person of Christ from whom we receive, as the creed says, perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. In Christ is a per- perfect satisfaction for our sins, that he is the one who died for each and every sin, past present, future. Not only the ones you did last night. I won't tell you what they are. You know them. But the ones you're going to do this afternoon. He died. He already died for those sins. He is your perfect righteousness. That is, he lived such a perfect life that he can now take the perfection of his life And apply it to your life. And he is perfect holiness. Because when he puts upon you his righteousness. Purchased because he lived a life without sin. You become holy. At least in position. And then you begin the whole process. Of making making the position your practice. Justification by faith is a position. Sanctification is that process. We can't confuse the two. But they are so close because it actually begins the moment you are justified, you begin that process. But it has to begin with justification. You know what this is like? There's a, a phrase, double Imputation and the creed, the catechism, uses that word, he imputes to us. This is what it's like. And I know I've done this before, but this is like what Peter did in his second epistle. I write these things to you again because I know you forget them. And it's a good reminder. I mean, you ought to be excited when I say double imputation. You go, yes, I'm going to hear it again. 
And if you aren't, see me afterwards. <laughs> no. This is your bank account of righteousness. Zero. This is what your life is like. Further and further in debt. We don't have a red marker here, do we? Oh, well. You go further and further in debt until you come to Christ. And then what happens is Christ applies to you. This is where you meet Christ. He applies to you what he did on the cross and he eliminates that debt. But all that does, it just brings you up to zero. You have no righteousness at all. You just have your sins forgiven. And in some ways, modern evangelicalism stops right here. All your sins are forgiven. Go out and live the way you want because you know that your other sins will be forgiven. Now, what Christ does here is he gives you the fullness of his life, his righteousness, his righteousness. It is an alien righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, you go from a zero bank account to a negative gazillion, back up to a zero bank account, and all of a sudden, a positive gazillion. And that positive gazillion, you could never, you could spend your whole life and you could never reduce this one, one iota because it's the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you. That's why our faith has to be centered upon a person. Not a feeling, not an action, not a sacrament, not anything that goes on but upon only who and what Christ has done. Martin Luther put it this way in the quotes in your, your booklet there. When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. Because he knew how much a debtor he was. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. Because I see that's where I am. That's where I am. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. And I'm mentioning him because he was a Baptist. And I know I'm tough on Baptists. But I thought I'd use a Baptist just to, to be fair and honest. Okay. My faith rests not in what I am or shall be or feel or know. But in what Christ is. In what he has done. And what he is now doing for me. That is what it means to have Christ as a center. It is entirely upon him. Unfortunately, and I'm afraid, that there are still a lot of people who are living in congregations, uh, progressive liberal congregations, they don't, they're not even taught this, so I can understand, but even evangelicals who haven't understood the alien righteousness they must have if they are going to be justified by God. And they're still out saying, I said a prayer. I walked the aisle. Or the old way, I walked the sawdust trail. Or I took a sacrament. Or I had somebody lay hands on me. Or whatever it might be. And I said, that's not what we're talking about. 
It is that Christ lived, died, was in the grave, and was raised on your behalf. That brings us to the fourth P. It's personal. You make a commitment. Back to question 60, last part. If, and he talks all about what God has granted and imputed as if I'd never committed, and he ends it, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. There must be some kind of commitment. Paul to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear the commitment in there? I, I, I. This is personal. He has, he has made it personal. It's not, well, Christ died for the sins of the world, therefore I must be, because I'm a sinner, I must have been one for whom he died. No, not necessarily. What he's talking about is, have you made it personal? Is it a commitment that you have made toward him? And that's the beginning. Commit. It may be a weak commitment. It doesn't matter as long as you've made it personal. Now, one of the things we hope that you do is you take this commitment, no matter how weak it is, and you make it a total commitment again it's like dating you get engaged you made a commitment to one another you know that you're right for one another and you're going to do it and you go through the process of of engagement and moving toward the wedding that's a commitment but it's a commitment that can be broken off but when you get to that wedding day and you make your covenant before God and the witnesses who are there and you say your vows, vows not of how you feel, sola centauri, but how you will act and how you will love one another. All of a sudden, it's total. I love the Anglican wedding form because what they say, forsaking all others, I take you. That's total commitment. See, and that's what it is to make it personal. I take it, I'm united with Christ. And what, ha- what that does is, you all wrote that down so you remembered it, right? So I can erase it. Whew. Faith is the instrument by which we grasp Christ. That's shorthand for Christ. Greek chi with an S on it. If you're a Christian, you're a chi with an N. If you're nobody, you're just a chi. (laughs) Faith is the instrument. It is not your salvation. It is the instrument. Paul put it this way to the Ephesians in his second chapter when he talks how we were dead in trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy, great love has made us alive. For by grace you have been saved through 
faith. Not by faith, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The question has always been, what does the word it define or what does it look back at? And it's the word faith. Faith is a gift from God. Even that you believe, it's not something you worked up or somebody helped work up with you in an emotional service. Faith is a gift that God gives to you. And it then is the instrument by which you grasp what Christ has done for you and you commit yourself to it. You make it that way. John says something very similar in his, the beginning of his gospel where after he has described Christ and how he has been rejected and he shows and he talks about it in this way. Verse 12, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. You see in verse 13, he, he eliminates anything you can use. It's not because of your family. It's not because you had a desire. It's not because of, your, of, of somebody else. You became a Christian because you received him. Not an active verb, it's a passive verb. He came into your life and therefore you responded and grasped him. And the way in which you do that is by faith. Again, Paul to the, to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. That's the crucial part. Another way to put it, is regeneration precedes regeneration precedes my dry eraser losing ink no regeneration precedes faith you are born again and therefore you believe Modern evangelicalism has pushed that around. You believe, therefore you are born again. How can a dead person believe anything? A person who hates God would not want to believe God. You have to be born again to believe. And if you get this wrong, you get this wrong, and 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 you are in real deep trouble. Because if you do not believe in the Son of God, you are separated with those who do believe. One to go into bliss, and the other to go into great harm. That's, that's, that's why this is so important. That's why Luther would say everything we're talking about here today and being justified by faith is the cardinal doctrine of the church and of the Christian. Because if you get this wrong, a church doesn't preach Christ 
And if you get this wrong, you are not justified by faith. And you are still outside of God's grace and holiness. And you are under one of those who's still seeking of how you can be holy before God. Romans 10th chapter. Paul drives this home after spending a long time talking about this to his readers. And he gets to the 10th chapter in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. That is a word not of it. It's a word about faith. Maybe a better way to say it. You hear word of faith and who do you think about? You think about the prosperity gospel. Now, this is a word of faith. This is a word that tells you what faith is all about. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you believe that God raised him from the dead, that's shorthand for what I take a little bit longer time saying life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you believe, if you are absolutely committed to that, and if you confess it, do it out loud, then you will be saved. The negative is just as true. If you don't believe and you don't confess, then you are not saved. You see how crucial this is? You see how horrible it is if we get this wrong, either personally or as a congregation or as a church? And I, I hate to say this, but I do come from a movement that has lost this. And there are people out there who are perishing because that's not what they're hearing. They're hearing go out and do good works, build houses for people, do social justice, all that stuff. Because God's really pleased with you simply because you are. How did a reformed denomination ever get that far away? I know how and I don't have time to tell you. But I know that's it. And actually, I can tell you, they didn't go through this stuff. Last one is as promised. That is, there are contracts that God makes with us. Uh, the Romans 10 passage. The contract is, if you do this, you will be saved. It doesn't say, as some in modern evangelical say, you may be saved. Or Roman Catholic, anyone who, who deals with, you know, you have to have Christ plus works. And you, you ask the question, how many works well, we don't know how many works, but you got to do them. And you end up coming down and saying, I might be saved. You know, when I hear somebody say, I might be saved, I'm wondering whether they really are saved. Because if it says the promise is here, and we, that's a contract that God makes with us. You believe with your mouth, you confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Point. End of discussion. Don't talk to me. Don't argue. That's it. That's God saying that to us. And that's what we trust upon. 
That's what we throw. All of this really does come from the contract God has with us and his promises. And the person he is. If God is not truthful, then his promises are worth spit. Because, they, because he may not really uphold them. But because God is faithful and truthful, his promises are worth all the gold in the land. Because he will. He will see them through. So, why do we spend so much time in the catechism? Why do we seem to spend so many endless weeks? Oh, if only we could get on to something else. It's your eternal soul. Catechism is spent looking at your sin, looking at your salvation. And after next week, we're going to start looking at your service to God. That's the three parts of the catechism. But we do it for one reason. So that you are absolutely assured that you are a child of God, justified by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone by grace and grace alone. And you're not adding anything else in it. So the question I leave with you today that you should ponder, forget the football games, forget the restaurant, forget everything else. Are you justified by faith alone? Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself, test yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Do you match up with this? Or are you deficient in one of these? Because if you're deficient, your eternal destiny could hang in the balance. If you're not, yes, you ought to be rejoicing. So when we come to sing today, you sing with gusto, even though you sing off key. None of us will worry about it, especially we who sing off key anyway. (laughs) Sing with gusto and praise God for what he has done. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you confront us in our sin, that we may know that there is a Savior. Thank you that you confront us in our weakness, that we may know that you have strength to rescue us. Thank you, O Lord, that you have granted to us Christ, the one who loved us and delivered himself for us, and that he lives within those who are your people. How precious that word election becomes to us, that you have chosen us in the beloved and sealed us with your Holy Spirit. I pray for those, O Lord, whose hearts and minds are wavering, wondering. And I pray that if they are not yours, you would bring them by your spirit and word into you and they may grasp you by faith and that they may be assured that they are your child. I pray for those who are your children who are wavering because they're not assured. Oh Lord, allow your spirit and your word to convert, not to convert, to convince them that what has been said is from you and therefore they are totally, fully, sincerely a child of yours. 
And I pray for the one who knows and is assured of it, that they may rejoice that it comes out of your grace and love and because of your actions and your actions alone. And they would worship and glorify you every day for the great God you are. Seal what has been said that is yours in our hearts and minds. Help us to forget that which is not from you. And Father, in all things, may you be glorified for your honor. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people gave a hearty Amen. Amen.